0: There are notes in the back, there's some in the back middle aisle, and there's some back by this door if you need a a copy of the notes. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the Bible, uh, which seems rather obvious, but I think what we've been doing over the last several weeks is a bit out of the ordinary, and I think it's important, Uh, important things for Christians to think about from time to time. We started off talking about what we believe about the Bible, the doctrine of Scripture. It's inspiration, inerrancy, perspicuity, authority, necessity, sufficiency, power, unity, and beauty. All of those doctrinal truths formed a foundation that now we're building on as we talk about hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is a fancy theological word that means how do you actually make sense of the Bible? How do you interpret the Bible? So we've talked about the canon. Right? Before we got into any discussion of rules for interpretation, the discussion of the canon was sort of like saying, this is the playing field that we're playing on. We'll get to all the rules in a minute, but these are the, the out-of-bounds markers, and we're playing inside of these lines. What belongs in the Bible? We talked about a basic introduction to hermeneutics, the role of the interpreter, some basic tools, and tonight we're going to actually start Uh, something. We're going to carry this forward in the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about specific genres of the Bible and the different rules and the different approach that you take when you're interpreting different passages of Scripture depending on the specific genre of that passage. Now, I gave you this disclaimer last week, and I'm probably going to do it every week for the next several weeks. What we're doing is not a traditional Bible study right now. What we're doing is hopefully equipping you to do better Bible study on your own. It's sort of the difference of here's a cake or let me show you how to bake a cake. Here's a fish or let me show you how to catch a fish. And hopefully the things that we're talking about, while it's not exactly a traditional Bible study, they do equip you in your own Bible study. So, how many of you like to watch award shows? It's been a long time since I watched any of the, the major music, TV, movie award shows. Anybody willing to admit? I didn't expect to see a ton of hands. Maybe one or two. Okay. It's interesting when you think about the Grammys, the Emmys, and the Oscars, that we have three different shows. We don't just have one show for all music and TV and movies, and we say, what's the best out of all that? We make a distinction, and we say, we're going to give an award to the best song. We're going to give an award to the best movie, and we're going to give an award to the best TV show. But even within those award shows, they don't just give one award, do they? That would be a pretty short show. Nobody would watch that. One award. Just tell us who it is. Great. But they give out lots of awards. And so when it comes to music, they say, look, we're going to give an award for country music. And we're going to give an award for hip-hop music. And we're going to give an award for rock music or alternative or whatever the the genre might be. We do the same thing with television. We make a distinction between a, a comedy and a reality TV show, in a miniseries, and a documentary. And we give awards to all those different categories. We do that. The same thing with movies. We say comedy, and and this is drama, and this is horror, or whatever the the sub-genre might be, because we know. How do you compare the best country song in a given year to the best rock and roll song in a given year? Uh, How do you compare the best Reality TV show to the best miniseries comedy TV show. It's hard to compare, it becomes very subjective. So we break things down into specific genres. We do the same thing when it comes to sports. And an example that came to mind this week is the Olympics. When it's time to have the Olympics, we don't send one athlete from the United States and say, This is our guy or this is our girl. We say, look, we got a a bobsled team. We have a hockey team. We have a curling team. We have an alpine skier. We have a cross-country skier. We have all these different events because we realize, how could you ever make the decision in giving an award to a a hockey team or a curling team? You'd probably just give it to the hockey team because those guys could beat you up. But you look at those two, they're so different. You say, it's hard to compare the two, and we recognize we need to break things down a little bit for the sake of clarity. That's what we're doing tonight, moving into the next couple of weeks. We're talking about specific genres of scripture. We're not just broadly saying, How do you interpret the Bible? but we're getting very specific. And tonight, what we're saying is, How do you interpret narrative? How do you interpret the stories of the Bible? How do you make sense of those stories? And how do you interpret epistles, the letters in the New Testament? How do you actually begin to think through and interpret those things? So in each of these genres, I'm going to give you some basic ideas, and then I'm just going to give you a whole bunch of suggestions, rules, guidelines for how you can approach interpretation. So we're going to start with narrative. Narrative is the most common genre in the bible most of the bible is narrative it's the biggest bulk of what you see when you hold the bible in your hands if you just were to highlight all the narrative sections most of it would be highlighted the interesting thing about narrative is it's not a pure genre and what i mean is you'll be reading a story and then in the middle of the story moses breaks into a song that's a different genre and it's just smashed right in there in the middle of the story, and then it goes back to the story. So there's all sorts of stuff mashed in there. You'll be reading through the Gospels, reading Jesus did this, Jesus did that. Then you read a parable. That's a different genre smashed into the middle of the narrative. So depending on how you sort of break out the narrative and what's in it and all the different uh, extra pieces in it, Bible scholars will say maybe 40% of the Bible is narrative. Some say as much as 60% of the Bible is narrative, but all seem to agree this is the most common type of writing in the Bible is narrative. Narrative is important as a genre because stories are memorable, number one, and number two, stories form the foundation of our worldview. It's really, really, really important. Narrative matters because stories are memorable and stories determine our worldview. When you come to our church and you've got little kids and you drop them in the, let's say, uh, second grade, first grade, maybe kindergarten Sunday school class for Bible study, odds are they are not going to do a detailed literary analysis of Paul's argument about justification in the book of Romans. Probably not going to happen. What are they going to do? We're going to tell them Bible stories. We're going to tell them stories, right? It's not watering down the Bible, but it's telling kids something that they can take in, something that they can understand, something that they can remember and something that forms the foundation for everything else that Paul says later about justification. The foundation of the Christian worldview is located in the stories of the Bible. Stories about creation, stories about sin, stories about trusting God, stories about who God is as he relates to his people. All those stories form the foundation of our worldview. This is an important point you've got to understand about narrative biblical narratives often make their point implicitly rather than explicitly. This is the biggest challenge when you're interpreting stories in the Bible is figuring out what's the point of this story because most of the time the biblical authors don't say here's the point of what I'm about to tell you and then tell you a story. They just tell you the story and then you're left with the story to say Okay, well, what does that mean? What's the takeaway? How would I even begin to think about applying it to my life? Usually the main point, the main purpose of a Bible story is implicit rather than explicit. I gave you a couple of quotes to this end. Robert Stein says it like this. The purpose of biblical narrative is not merely to tell what took place in the past. Rather, it's to relate these past events to biblical faith. However... The meaning of a narrative is taught implicitly rather than explicitly. Another Robert, Robert Plummer, says it like this. Historical narratives also present some unique interpretive challenges. The biblical writer's purposes are usually undercurrents of the text rather than floating unmistakably on the surface. It's not that the biblical authors are trying to hide their point from you. That's just how story works. It's not an explicit point. It's usually an implicit point. It's usually an undercurrent of the story. Now, we tell stories all the time, verbally, all the time. And when we tell stories verbally, we use cues, uh, voice inflection, tone, body language, facial uh, expression. We use all these cues to help somebody understand the story that we're telling. And we can start a story in the exact same way and use social cues to help people understand that we're telling one kind of a story or another. For example, pretend I wanted to tell you a story about something that someone did for me that I thought was really nice. I might start that story and say, hey, you will not believe what so-and-so did. I got to tell you this. You won't believe what they did. It, It was amazing. They took the day off work. They went home. They asked around to my friends and found out what my favorite meal is. They cooked the meal for me. They brought it over to my house. A complete surprise. They just did it to be kind. Can you believe that? And as I'm telling the story, you're listening and you understand I'm pleased with what's happened. I'm pleasantly surprised by this gesture. I could use the exact same words, and I could tell a different kind of story. I could say to you, you will not believe what happened to me today. You got to hear this. Oh, this is rich. I was driving down 42nd Street, and then you can just fill in the blanks. It all went downhill from there. 42nd Street is not a story that ends well. Both stories start with the same words you will not believe what this person did for me, or you will not believe what I had to deal with today. There's cues in that. Now, if your wheels are turning, you're thinking, that's great. You're telling the story out loud, but I'm reading the Bible on the page. right? I don't get to hear Moses' tone. I don't get to see Paul's body language. I don't get to see the expression on David's face when he's telling me, These stories. How do I make sense of what's actually happening here? That's what we're going to try to talk about. How should we interpret biblical narratives? I think I've got 10. That's a good Bible number. I think I've got 10 of these. Number one, be aware of the literary context. You've got to be aware of the literary context when you look at story. I gave you Psalm 14, and as I looked at Psalm 14, it proves my point, but it's not in a narrative. And so I, I regret that I put Psalm 14:1 in there. Let me quote you a verse instead of Psalm 14:1. Let me quote you a verse, a part of a verse from the Book of Job, Job chapter 2, verse 9. Did you know that the Bible says this is biblical? Curse God and die. Any of you have that on a coffee mug? Any of you seen Job 2.9 on a nice sort of pastel scene and Hobby Lobby hanging up in the inspirational art section? Curse God and die. That's in the Bible. That's Bible. How many times have you heard somebody say that? That's in the Bible. Well, who cares? What's the context? What's happening around that? What's happening around that is Job and his wife are suffering greatly. And his wife is in the midst of grieving, tremendous, tremendous loss. And she's struggling with her faith. And she's a bit put out with the Lord and all that's happened in her life. And she looks at her husband and says, why don't you just curse God and die? When you read it in context, it makes a little more sense. You realize, oh, the Bible's not telling me curse God and die. Although those words are actually in the Bible. This is a good rule for narrative. Okay, for narrative. The smaller the piece of narrative that you're studying, the more likely you are to get it wrong. With narrative, you want to read a larger section. You want to read much, much before it, much further after it, so that you understand the context. So number one, be aware of the literary context. This is sort of a, we referenced this two weeks ago, this is sort of a a circular thing, a chicken and the egg thing. We called it the hermeneutical circle, or some people call it the hermeneutical spiral. If you want to understand the parts of the Bible, the little bitty pieces of the Bible, it really helps to understand the big picture of the Bible. But if you want to understand the big picture of the Bible, you've got to somehow make sense of all the little bitty parts. And you get in this circle and you say, well, where do I start? And the answer is yes, you just start. You just start reading as much as you can and you start studying deep and specific passages and you try to see the big picture and you try to make sense of the little pieces. And as you make sense of the little pieces, it helps you with the big picture. And there's a circle that sort of reinforces your reading, okay? How do we interpret the, the biblical narratives? Number two, read horizontally when possible. Horizontally when possible. Bible scholars sometimes talk about reading horizontally and vertically. Vertically is what we just talked about. You need to back up and you need to move forward. You need to read what comes in Job chapter one and two and then in three and four. You need to do it like that. Reading horizontally means, is there any other place in the Bible that tells the same story or talks about the same thing? Right? In the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. There's a lot of repeat material, right? Right? Sometimes it's word for word. Sometimes it's not word for word. And sometimes if you'll read horizontally across the story, you'll be able to make sense of what's going on in a particular passage. Same thing is true for the Gospels. One of my favorite resources, I use it all the time when I'm studying the Gospels, is called A Harmony of the Gospels by a Baptist Greek scholar named A.T. Robertson. And the the pages, I just opened to a random page of the book, and mashed it down and Xeroxed it so you could sort of see it. In some places, you see the bottom of the left page and the top of the right, John is the only gospel author that tells a particular story. But in some places, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the same story. And in some places, Luke and John tell the same story. And what he's done in this book is he's sort of cut all the gospels apart. It's all in there and he's just arranged it all in one linear flow. And you read through it, and it helps you read horizontally. It helps you look across and say, okay, Mark tells this story with these words. How does Luke tell the story? Exactly the same, or does he tell it a little bit differently? And that might help me understand Mark. This is a valuable thing, especially when you're reading narrative. Number three, try to understand the historical and cultural background of the story or the narrative that you're reading. And I gave you Exodus 21 as as an example. In Exodus 21, we read something that's kind of shocking to modern people, especially modern American people. Exodus 21, starting in verse 1, these are the rules that you shall set before them when you buy a Hebrew slave. And immediately Americans say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 we're talking about slavery? Slavery in the Bible? Well, you've heard people say it, that's in the Bible too. And as Americans, we read that verse and we jump into it and we say, oh man, well, we know all about slavery. It's a bad deal. Well, we had slavery in our country. I'm glad we don't have it anymore. Why do these people have it? And what we tend to do is between us and the biblical text, we take all of our cultural assumptions about what slavery is and isn't, and we put them in the middle, and we read the Bible through that lens, rather. Then taking the Bible in its own historical context and understanding, Moses didn't know a cotton-picking thing about shadow slavery, race-based slavery in the United States of America. He knew nothing about that. And what he's talking about here is something that's actually quite different than what happened in this country. What Moses is talking about is actually a situation where a slave serves their master... And then comes to the end of their term of service and says, hey, I really don't don't want to strike out on my own. I'd I'd rather just kind of stay with you. That's not our experience of what slavery is. This is something altogether different. And if you're going to understand the narrative, you've got to be able to take off your own historical, cultural assumptions off and read the Bible in its own historical and cultural context. That doesn't mean... That your pastor is saying, bring back the kind of slavery they had in the book of Exodus. That just means you can't interpret this passage in light of the American experience of slavery. That wasn't on Moses' radar at all, and so you can't import that to the text. Same thing is true in Ephesians. Okay, next. Be careful with word meanings. Be careful with word meanings. How many of you have one of these at the back of your Bible? you got one of these things. It's got all these words and references, and you can look up the word home, greed, enlightened, deceives, control, all these different words, and it tells you all these places you can look in the Bible. Sometimes this is helpful when you say, man, I know there's a verse that says something like this, and you can pull one word out, and maybe you can find it in the the concordance or in the, the appendix here. There's a danger in this section of your Bible if you've got one of these. And the danger is that you look at all the verses that have all of a particular word and you assume that in all of those verses that particular word means exactly the same thing. And we've talked about this in recent weeks. Words in every language, English, Spanish, Greek, Hebrew, they have a range of meaning. Sometimes a word can mean this, and sometimes the exact same word can mean this, and sometimes those meanings overlap a little bit, but sometimes it's like a Venn diagram, and parts of the the meaning don't overlap. And there's a danger when you just work through the concordance that you assume every instance of the word sanctify means the exact same thing. It doesn't in the Bible, and you really need to pay attention to the context. The other danger is to understand that words have ranges of meaning and to look at a passage and say, just because this word can mean this, then I get to import it into this passage. Well, you don't necessarily get to do that. You have to understand the passage in its context. And so when you're reading these large sections of Scripture, you've got to be careful with word meaning. Very closely related to that is this idea. Pay attention to grammar and syntax. If you have a Bible, look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28. How many of you remember diagramming sentences in school? Any of you remember? How many of you remember that fondly? Yeah, maybe a few of you. Yeah, I thought some of you would keep your hand up. It's miserable for students. It's really, really important when it comes to interpreting texts. And it's important in a passage like Matthew 28. This is something that we're familiar with. Matthew 28 verse 19 says this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm reading out of the ESV. If you were to diagram that English sentence, there are two commands. There's a command to go, and there's a command to make disciples. Then there's two participles in English, and the two participles are you're baptizing them and you're teaching them. So if you're studying this passage in English grammatically, you look at it and you say, if I'm going to be obedient to Jesus, there are two things that I have to to do. Number one, go. Number two, make disciples. And the way that I make disciples is I baptize people, share the gospel with them, and I teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. I disciple them walk with them to Christian maturity. And if that's your understanding of the text, you say, well, I can't obey this text if I don't go. But if you read this text in the original language, there is very clearly only one command. And it gets lost in the translation. It gets lost in most translations. The only command in this passage is make disciples. That's the command. Go is not the command. Make disciples is the command. How do we do that? Well, going and baptizing and teaching. Those are the things involved in making disciples, going and baptizing and teaching. But you can get it mixed up if you don't pay attention. And this is, this is tricky for all of us, okay? I've taken Greek and Hebrew. I am not a Greek or a Hebrew scholar, by any stretch of the imagination. I did pretty good in my Greek and Hebrew classes. I'm not a Greek or a Hebrew scholar. I'm dependent on other people and their wisdom when it comes to the original language, just like 99.9% of pastors are. But you've got to give precedence to the original language. And we've talked about this on Wednesday nights. We've talked about this saying that we throw around. Well, my Bible says... We're in a small group Bible study. Well, in my translation, it says this. Well, in my translation, it says it this way. Well, my translation doesn't even use the word go. It says something. Well, at some point, all of that's irrelevant. You might be reading out of a poor translation. You might be reading out of a translation that's completely twisted the particular meaning of a passage. You might be reading out of a translation that's tried to simplify the language so much that it then obscures the meaning of the text. And so when you're reading narrative, this is part of a narrative. It's the end of Matthew's narrative of Jesus' life. You really do have to go back to seventh grade and your sentence diagramming, and you have to be willing to study and think and dig in a little bit. You gotta pay attention to grammar and syntax. Okay, next, look for editorial comments. There's a lot of places in the Bible where we wish the author in a story would tell us more than what they tell us. And you're sort of left saying, I need a few more details here. There's a few places where the author helps you and gives you some details. And I'll let you look some of these up. Genesis 50, 20. It's the narrative of Joseph and all of the mess he got into in Egypt. And Genesis 50, 20 essentially says, this was not just something that Joseph's brothers did to him. This was something that God did to preserve many lives. It's a little editorial comment put into the story to help you go back and understand the whole thing. You see the same thing in 1 Kings fifteen eleven. I think this particular reference is to Asa. And it says to you, Asa was a good king. He loved the Lord. He was a good king. You need to know that because Asa did some stupid stuff in his life. And if the author didn't give you that clue, you may come to the end of the story of Asa and be like, yeah, I don't know, kind of good, kind of bad, depend on the day. But the author's telling you, no, 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 look, this was a guy who loved the Lord. This was a good king. Did he make some mistakes? Yes. Were they heinous mistakes? Yes. Did they displease the Lord? Yes. This, this, this was a good king. Mark 7 is another example of that. I'll let you look, on that, look at that on your own. Next, wrestle with the story in the absence of editorial comments. And the reference I gave you is Second Samuel 11.1. 1. This is a verse familiar to many of you. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Many, many times we teach and we preach that passage as if David has certainly done something wrong, By staying home. And we read it and we said, well, it says it right there. It's the spring and the kings are supposed, that's when kings normally, normally go out to war. So he should have gone out to war and the fact that he stayed, he already messed up by not going out to war. But the text just says it was the spring and that is when the kings normally go out to battle and David did stay. But you know, it's not the first time he did that. In fact, you can back up in the story, and it talks about David. He's getting ready to go out and fight, and his generals come to him and say, Whoa, whoa, whoa look, David, we're not a ragtag bunch of guys anymore. We're a real kingdom, and we don't want you dead, so we're going to go fight, and you're going to stay here because we need you. And he stays, and the generals go, and they fight for him. He wasn't a young man at that point. He was an older man, and the story gives no indication that it was sinful at all. So I'm just telling you, you've got to listen to what the story says and what it doesn't say. It doesn't explicitly say David was sinful to stay home. We assume that, we read that in, and maybe that's a legitimate interpretation. But if it doesn't openly say it, directly say it, then we need to wrestle with it. And maybe we need to say, well, why didn't he go out? What's going on? Why, why would he stay? Maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's not something, but it's certainly something that we ought to wrestle with. Next, focus on repeated words and themes. Repetition is a really, really important part of making sense of biblical narrative. If you look at the book of Judges chapter 3, verse 7. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. They served that king, cushan Rithaim, eight years. But they cried out to the Lord. He raised up a deliverer who saved them. The spirit of the Lord was on Othniel. He judged Israel. He went out to war. The Lord gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hand. He prevailed. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel died. And then the whole thing starts over again. And when you read that in the book of Judges, the repetition is painfully obvious. And you realize, okay, he's making a point here, right? He's showing me through repetition what the point is of all of these stories. These are stubborn, wicked people, and they just keep going back to the same nonsense. You see the same thing at the end of the book of Judges. There's twice repeated this phrase, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it brackets the end of the book where there's no longer any repentance. And the repetition, first at the beginning of that section, and then at the end is telling you this is where the train completely goes off the tracks. So you've got to pay attention to repetition. I've given you some examples in Acts as well. Next, be cautious with details. Be very cautious with details. You remember the story in Genesis 22. The Lord has told Abraham to go sacrifice his son on a mountain. Verse 3 says, he rose early in the morning. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took his young men with him and his son Isaac. That detail that he rose early in the morning, I think, has some significance. I think it helps you understand something about Abraham. God asked him to do something very difficult. And the book of Hebrews indicates there was some wrestling about what God had asked him to do. That would be reading horizontally across the Bible. But he woke, he woke, he rose early to go do what God asked him to do. There wasn't any delay in his obedience. I think that's an important detail. Now, in the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 15, it says, Paul made it, made it all the way to Rome. He was a prisoner. And brothers came from the three taverns. I don't think that means, like, the brothers came from a tavern that was named after the trinity, the three taverns. And I don't think that means these brothers came from the three taverns. That means it's okay for you to go hang out in taverns all day long. I don't think that's a detail that you ought to try to apply to your life. I think he's just saying they came. That's where they came from. It's just a detail. That's all it is. Sometimes details are just details, And there's not any sort of secret spiritual meaning to something like 153 fish. So you be careful with details. Next, remember that not all narrative is normative. Not all narrative is normative. The Gospel of Luke. We all talk about wanting to be like Jesus. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 7 says, She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. So... Everybody's good if we take the baby cribs out of the nursery and put mangers down in the bed baby's room, right? We want to be biblical, right? It's good enough for Jesus. It ought to be good enough for you. Well, that's something that happened in the story. It doesn't mean it's something that you have to do. It doesn't mean that you're a bad parent if you don't do that. So it's a detail. It's important to know that he was laid in a manger. It tells us something about the circumstances of his birth, but Luke's not trying to tell us to do that. Thing. There's a million examples of this in the Bible. For example, in the book of Acts, Luke keeps talking about people who spoke in tongues. Many of our charismatic friends assume, well, they did it, so we should do it. Well, by that same logic, you ought to lay your baby in a manger. So just be careful with saying anything that happened in the story is something that we ought to necessarily do. You've got to be a little bit more discerning when it comes to... To narrative. All right, let's talk about epistle. We're going to move quickly. New Testament epistles are letters written to churches, individuals, or Christians generally. They're just letters. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, 21 are letters. The only books that you would take out of that list are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Revelation. And even Revelation partly belongs in the epistle category. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. The standard form for a letter in the first century... Required, in this order, salutation, thanksgiving, the body, exhortation, and a conclusion. That's generally how all of Paul's letters, all of the letters of the New Testament play out. Those are the major pieces that you'll find. The epistles, Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard, Hubbard say, the epistles primarily teach theology and offer ethical teaching. So, how do we make sense? How do we interpret letters? Number one, understand that the epistles contain direct teaching. Remember we said in narrative, the main emphasis, the main point is usually an undercurrent. You usually have to read it and sort of piece some things together and think, what is the point here? What is he asking me to do? What is he asking me to believe? You don't have to do that with the letters. It's just right there in your face. Like when Paul says, love one another, you don't need to stop and say, okay, but what does he really mean? Like that's what he means. Love one another. When he says you ought to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need to decode that. You don't need to look for any sort of secret hidden meaning. You just take it as direct teaching. So there's a a directness that you might say is a bit more clear in the epistles. Remember that epistles are occasional documents. Meaning they were written on and for particular occasions. For example you start reading through first and second corinthians paul is like he's like a schizophrenic man bringing up all sorts of random things and you think why would this guy just bring up all these random he brings up getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, and then he brings up lawsuits, and then he brings up going to prostitutes, and it's just all this random stuff. But if you look at 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says, now, about the things you wrote to me about. And then he starts to address all these things, and you realize, oh, they wrote Paul a letter, and they asked all these questions and Paul's answering all their questions. And that understanding of a back and forth helps you make sense of the book. When you turn to Philippians 1.1 and Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi, it's really helpful if you understand what happened the first time Paul went to Philippi. Go back to the book of Acts. You read horizontally. And it helps you understand the occasion for the letter. Okay, number three. Epistles have value for other audiences. Not just the original audience who received the letter. And I love how Paul introduced or gave a greeting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. He said, To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I'm writing to the people in Corinth. But he understood what I'm writing is really for any believer in any place, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's application in this letter for those people. So there's value for other audiences. That would be us. Next, we've talked about this a lot. Read horizontally when possible. Somebody asked me this week about Colossians 1.20. Paul says, all things in heaven and on earth will be reconciled. And the question is, does that mean everyone goes to heaven? Say, well, if that's the only thing Paul said about going to heaven, maybe. But it's not the only thing that he said about heaven. So let's back up and move forward and let's go read horizontally and see what else Paul had to say about reconciliation and heaven and eternity and hell and all the rest. And that helps us interpret the passage. This is a big one, and it's really a small one. Study smaller units of thought. It's the exact opposite of narrative. With narrative, you need a chapter, two, three, four to understand what's going on. You can't make sense of it if you don't read a huge section, a large section. But with epistles, if you try to take in one whole huge section at one time, it's like putting your face in front of a fire hydrant and flipping the switch off or the flipping the cap off and the thing just blasts you in the face. Like if you try to read Romans 1, 2, 3 all at once, there's so much in those chapters you're just going to come away saying, Paul's crazy. So he's not crazy, it's just an epistle. And you can't swallow three chapters at once, you can maybe swallow three verses at once and you need to break it down to a smaller unit. Last, allow didactic passages to interpret narrative passages. An easy example of this is the Gospels tell you what happened, and the Epistles tell you why it matters. The Gospels are narrative. This is what happened in the life of Jesus, and the Epistles come along and say, This is why it's important. This is why it matters to you. Those clear statements help us make sense of the story that sometimes doesn't have its meaning or its point or its purpose explicitly stated but it's rather implicitly stated. So look, last week I gave you this picture up on the screen. And I've been uh, surprised at all of the constructive criticism I have received from people who were here last week and listened online about my list. And some of you said, that's the perfect list, and you're my favorite church members. And some of you said, no, that's a lousy list, and I love you too because it means you were listening and you're paying attention. But when you look at this list, you say, What are those movies all about? Well, the most obvious answer is they're all baseball movies. But you also look at it and you say, Sandlot is a kid's movie. I know the kids who watched it are now kind of grown-ups, and it's a kid movie. Field of Dreams is kind of a suspenseful movie. There's kind of something going on you're not entirely sure about till the end. And The Natural is an old-person movie. I know that. It's slow and plodding and it's kind of boring and you probably fall asleep in the middle and you wake up an hour later and you miss nothing. You just know exactly what's going on. You just pick up right where you left off. And Major League is a a punchy comedy. And when you watch these movies, they're all baseball movies, but you take them for what they are. And you don't watch Major League and say, well, you know, it's, it's kind of childish. It's supposed to be Childish. Like, the humor is supposed to be punchy and crude. Like, that's the point of the whole thing. You don't look at the Sandlot and say, well, it's not a very sophisticated story. It doesn't offer the drama of the natural. You say, well, it's a kid's movie. Kids can't watch the natural for two minutes. But they love the Sandlot because there's dogs and all kinds of crazy stuff, baseballs flying over the fence. It's great. You look at the natural and you don't say, well, I wouldn't put it on that list because my kids hate it. Well, your kids are supposed to hate it. It's a grown-up movie. It's not a a kid movie. And you look at that and you say, they're all about baseball. But when you sit down to watch any of these movies, you take it on its own terms. You say, okay, this is a, a kid movie. You understand What's going on? Okay, this is a drama. Okay, this is a comedy. And you make sense of all these movies and the point they're trying to make according to the genre. That's what we're trying to do with the Bible. We're trying to look at it and say, okay, all of this book is about Jesus. The whole book from beginning to end is about what the one true God has done to save people through his son, Jesus Christ. But that one point gets communicated through poems... And prophecy and parables and stories and letters and songs and apocalypse and all sorts of different things. And we can't read all of those things exactly the same way. We've got to have some tools to approach each of those genres so that we can see the one story that runs all the way through the Bible, the one point and emphasis that runs through the Bible, and that's what God has done to save his people through his son, Jesus Christ. So we're going to pray together, and then we'll sing on our way out.